Hello and welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. This is the news roundup episode for this week. Uh, Aaron Miller is traveling, so he will not be joining us today and I will be doing this episode solo. Uh, Because I'm doing it solo, I don't want to spend quite as long discussing each item since you'll only get one voice on each of these items. So I'm going to move a little bit more quickly through the items we'll discuss today and as such cover more items in total. Uh, My intention is to cover six items as follows. First off, the memo penned by a Google engineer which subsequently got him fired on the subject of diversity in tech and at Google specifically. Secondly, uh, board shenanigans we might say at Uber. Thirdly, uh, Netflix and Disney announcements this week. Fourth, Facebook's launch of its watch tab for video. Uh, Fifth, Consumer Reports' uh, withdrawal of its recommendation of Surface devices from Microsoft. And lastly, what's been going on with SoundCloud over the last week or two. Kicking things off with the Google memo, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one. Uh, It's a thorny issue, to say the least. I think um, worth discussing, but... um, It's one where I don't want to get too much into the weeds on the details of it. Uh, Ultimately, in case you haven't followed this story, which which has become uh, big news not only in the tech industry but beyond, uh, James Damore, or Damore, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce his last name, was an engineer at Google until this week. He wrote a memo which was widely circulated inside of Google and then over the past weekend started to leak out of Google as well. Uh, In that memo, he laid out what he felt was strong scientific evidence for gender differences between men and women, which he felt helped to explain the imbalance between men and women in uh, engineering at Google and elsewhere in the tech industry. And he argued that because of these biological differences, the real solution was to change the roles of engineers and make other changes rather than push the kinds of diversity efforts that have been seen to date. Uh, He was criticized within Google, and this is why the thing leaked. Uh, But he also had argued in the piece that views such as his and dissenting views in general were often squashed within Google. People felt afraid to air them and so on. And he was subsequently fired later in the week for having aired those views in that memo internally, even though those views did eventually leak externally. Uh, He's been widely criticized outside of Google for the views expressed um, for a number of different reasons. Uh, But it's also been clear that there's been some support from both within Google and outside of Google, a lot of criticism of Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, who made the decision to fire the engineer, and so on and so forth. Uh, At issue here is the fact that Silicon Valley really is not as diverse a place as it sometimes likes to believe it is, uh, or as diverse as many other industries. It is very male-dominated. It's also uh, underrepresentative of um, African-American and other racial minorities, with the exception of Asian-Americans. And... Uh, this is the context, frankly, for all of this. And uh, when it comes to gender specifically, all the evidence from research studies and so on suggests that the reason for the imbalance is not gender differences, but both conscious and unconscious bias. There's lots of studies showing that when people review resumes, when they uh, look at projects, when they do performance reviews and so on, the way that they handle those for men and those for women is very different, that men are often given credit for identical achievements uh, to those of women who are not given similar credit. 
uh, in hiring processes, women's resumes that are identical to those of men, that when they're identified as such are rated lower and so on and so forth. Lots and lots of evidence of this. And as I say, that's partly conscious bias, partly unconscious bias. Um, and there's lots of ways of dealing with that. There's blind reviewing for recruitment processes and things like that. And these are the kinds of diversity initiatives that are happening at Google. And these are the kinds of things that this engineer was arguing against. Predictably, women within the organization who already feel somewhat marginalized and feel like the diversity initiatives could go further uh, were upset that somebody would suggest even the diversity initiatives that currently exist should be disbanded, that they weren't worth pursuing, and that ultimately women were not as well suited for engineering jobs as currently defined at Google as men. And so this is why he was fired ultimately. I think Google prioritized the needs of its female employees over the need to preserve some sort of general commitment to free speech and so on at Google. In the process, of course, it somewhat played into the hands of the engineer in the argument that he was making, and that predictably has been the sort of banner raised by those who've supported him, which is increasingly a sort of political group that's uh, participated in other past controversies and so on. The point here is this is a thorny issue, the issue of diversity in in tech is one that continues to be a big one, continues to be one that companies have a lot more work to do on. Uh, issues like this, uh, where there's a mix of sort of the diversity angle and the free speech angle are particularly thorny. I think Google probably ultimately had no choice but to fire the engineer here just in order to preserve its reputation for treating women at least reasonably well and trying to increase its diversity. But in the process, clearly has set off a whole firestorm of other stuff uh, the town hall that Google's supposed to hold internally this week had to be cancelled at the last minute because questions submitted by Googlers ahead of time started to leak along with the people's names and personal details. Um, it seems that was done by people who sympathized with the engineer. Um, and so for safety reasons, it was called off. And so th there's a whole big firestorm that's not going to go anyway anytime soon. Um, but just kind of highlights a lot of the underlying issues which continue to be very contentious and increasingly political. That's enough on that topic. Um, we'll move on to Uber, uh, where there's also been a fair amount of back and forth this week internally on a very different topic. Uh, Travis Klanek has been widely reported in a number of different publications as, as continuing to try to exert influence over Uber. He currently sits on its board still, despite the fact that he's no longer the CEO there. He's been trying to influence the CEO process. But more than that, he's been telling people that he's, quote, Steve Jobsing it. In other words, that he feels like he'll spend some time in the wilderness and then come back and take back over again. Um, and he's been supposedly trying to orchestrate uh, various maneuvers and so on that would enable him to continue to have influence at the company and so on. This week, Benchmark, which owns a little over 10% of Uber, is one of its major venture backers and, and was really the driving force behind pushing Travis Kalanick out as CEO, has sued Travis Kalanick and the company, although the main focus of the lawsuit is Travis Kalanick, over... Uh, all the things that he allegedly covered up and didn't disclose to major shareholders like Benchmark, which in turn have led to the turmoil over the last several months and so on. On that basis, it says uh, Travis Klanick shouldn't be on the board anymore, that um, a change that was made to the board last year that created three new seats, of which uh, Travis Klanick now occupies one, um, should be uh, reversed and so on and so forth. And then Travis Klanick... Um, continues to fight against all of that, continues to plan to appoint two additional board members alongside himself uh, and a different group of Uber shareholders who are sympathetic to Klanik are now pushing to get Benchmark out as a major investor and as a holder of a board seat. So lots of controversy here. 
The reality is, I think for pretty much everybody outside of Uber, it's very clear at this point that Travis Kalanick needs to have as much distance between him and Uber as possible so the company can move on without distraction, so that it can appoint a CEO who won't have the threat of Kalanick hanging on the wings, uh, hanging over them. Uh, but to some of the shareholders, certainly some of the employees, Kalanick continues to be something of a hero, somebody who's really got Uber to the point where it currently is today, and therefore he should stay on in some kind of a role at Uber. Um, and so you have this massive conflict and controversy, which seems very likely to prevent the company from appointing a competent CEO because nobody would really want to take over in these circumstances. So all of this is likely to prolong the uncertainty, to prolong this crazy kind of leadership by committee that's going on at Uber at the moment, the lack of direction that it has at a time when it really does need to move forward, make some significant changes and start to reinvent itself following all the scandals and other things over the last sort of seven or eight months or so. So it's a messy situation, not likely to be resolved anytime soon. Benchmark, having sued, will we'll try to get quick action, including an injunction against Travis Kalanick, filling those other two board seats as part of its lawsuit. So that's all going to play out over the next few weeks, which just highlights quite how, div- uh, how divisive Travis Kalanick has been at Uber with both detractors and defenders within the company, mostly, frankly, detractors, I think, outside the company, as I mentioned earlier, I think most people outside, especially most commentators in the industry, agree that he's he just needs to be away from there and stop uh, meddling in things. But clearly he feels it's very hard to do so. Uh, and naturally, as, as the, the guy who led Uber through most of its growth over the last few years, he feels he still has a lot to offer. But uh, I think everybody else agrees that he needs to go at this point. Certainly that's my feeling on the subject. Thirdly, we'll talk about Netflix and Disney. Netflix announced an acquisition, its first ever acquisition this week, and then Disney reported earnings, and that also had a Netflix component to it. And so I think it's worth discussing these two things together. Netflix's acquisition is of a comic book company called Miller World, which is a sort of second-tier comic book company, the two big ones, of course, being Marvel and DC Comics, uh, both of which have long been the source of lots of big blockbuster movies about superheroes and the like. Uh, Miller World, much smaller, much less well-established, but it has also been uh, source material for four films at this point, four motion pictures uh, over the last few years, including the Kingsman franchise, which has another movie coming out this summer. Um, The acquisition is almost certainly intended to act as something of a hedge against losing Marvel content, and the relationship that Netflix currently has with Disney and therefore Marvel Studios, uh, which is owned by Disney, um, which is not only providing movies, but is providing original TV content as well for Netflix, including several quite popular and successful series on Netflix that are developed with Marvel. Uh, Disney then went ahead and, and announced its earnings later in the week, and as part of those earnings announced a fairly significant strategic shift uh, with several components to it, one of which is that starting with the 2019 theatrical slate, the animated movies from Disney and Pixar will no longer be made available to Netflix, but will instead be exclusives to Disney's own streaming service. Second announcement is that Disney is launching its own streaming services around both the ESPN and Disney brands, ESPN in 2018, Disney in 2019, um, And so that's another big shift. It also announced that it was acquiring a majority stake in BamTech, which is the old MLB advanced media business that was created by Major League Baseball to uh, create the technology and manage the subscriptions around its over-the-top subscription to baseball. 
games and so on uh, a number of years ago. Disney took a minority stake a while back and, and had the option to acquire a majority stake since then, an option it's now decided to exercise. So that BAM tech uh, company and technology and so on will be the core of the delivery, the payment processing, the subscription management, everything else associated with those ESPN Disney subscription services that will be coming over the next couple of years. So that's kind of all the announcements briefly. Um, you know, Miller World for Netflix is an interesting acquisition. Uh, it does seem like a lot of the most compelling characters have already been turned into movies. Uh, what's also worth noting is those movies, every one of the four that have been released based on Miller World intellectual property, uh, have been R-rated. They're very much aimed at sort of older teenagers and adults rather than the kind of uh, preteen and teen boys that tend to watch a lot of superhero movies that are made by uh, Marvel Studios. All the Disney ones have been PG-13. Uh, the X-Men movies, uh, that whole universe is owned by Fox from a movie perspective. Um, and uh, even though the IP is owned by Marvel comic books, a couple of those have been R-rated, but the vast majority have been PG-13 as well. So whereas the Marvel Universe has kind of produced a lot of mainstream blockbuster-type superhero movies, Miller World, so far at least, has mostly produced R-rated movies for older audiences. So it's not exactly a direct replacement even for Marvel. And, of course, it's the animated movies that are going to be going away. Netflix also has a deal with DreamWorks Animation, which has given it, again, both movies and original series and so on over the last few few years. There's no guarantee that carries on long term. So uh, at some point in the next few years, Netflix, it may end up with a big gap where a bunch of this animation content used to be. And if my household's anything to go by, that animation content's very popular with kids and, and constitutes a big chunk of the content that kids watch through Netflix. And that's obviously an important audience and many families who subscribe to Netflix is the kids. And so that's a risk for Netflix. It's mostly further away at this point, and in the case of DreamWorks Animation, theoretical at this point as well. But there is a risk there uh, that's worth watching. From Disney's perspective, they've suffered greatly over the last few years uh, from the fact that ESPN subscribership and viewership have been in decline. As a result, advertising revenue from ESPN has started to fall uh, they have built-in rate increases for ESPN such that they've been able to maintain their subscription revenue fairly well, but that probably won't last forever either. Meanwhile, they've basically resisted the direct-to-consumer trend that almost every big other media company has embraced over the last few years in one way or another. So they have not gone direct-to-consumer yet with any of their offerings in the US. They've had some limited trials in Europe around the Disney brand. Um, but they are now embracing that, at least to some extent. It sounds like the ESPN service is going to be limited. It won't have NFL or NBA content. So it will not offer the full spectrum of games that people expect to be able to watch through an ESPN service. That's going to certainly hamper it. And this feels like yet another example of a big traditional media company uh, going direct to consumer, but doing it so in such a way that is uh, prioritizing, not cannibalizing the existing linear TV services over providing the best possible option for consumers. And my worry here is that Disney will neither save the subscribers that it's losing on the cord-cutting side by offering this service, nor gain a lot of new ones, because it really won't be the compelling over-the-top service people are looking for. Meanwhile, people will instead subscribe to a variety of skinny bundles from over-the-top streaming services, which include ESPN, but also other sports content, and get their sports fixed that way, which will still leave Disney without a direct relationship with the consumer, which is something it's trying to solve with these direct-to-consumer offerings. So I'm skeptical of this pivot. It certainly needed to happen, and it's good that it's happening. 
but Disney's really not going far enough with some of this stuff yet. And with ESPN in particular, it needs to simply offer all the ESPN content it can as a single subscription to over-the-top subscribers uh, and allow them to buy everything they want to. At the moment, it's going to be a very much a sort of subset of that content, which is going to make it far less compelling. So even though this is being billed as a big strategic shift by Disney, I do worry that it's not going far enough and that it's not going to make the difference it needs to to its underlying performance. More to the point, all this stuff is coming next year at the earliest, which means we're going to see several more quarters of declines in that cable business that Disney has, especially in the ESPN segment. Um, and so there's no short-term solutions to any of Disney's problems here. And as I say, the long-term solutions are uh, shaky at best. Number four today, we're going to talk about Facebook's announcement this week of its Watch tab. So not Watch hardware, but a, a new tab in the Facebook app called Watch, which is designed to act as a new home for video on the platform. It already has a video tab, but this is going to be uh, a more cohesive approach to video. There's going to be more uh, high production value type content in there. Lots of new partners coming in, many of which have been seeded by Facebook with some production subsidy, essentially. Facebook doesn't want to finance content on an ongoing basis, so this is very different from the original content pushes we've seen at other big companies like Netflix, HBO, Hulu, Apple, Amazon, and so on. This is very much about seeding some early content and then allowing Facebook partners and content creators to capture a lot of the ad revenue and therefore to build uh, uh, sustainable businesses over time, which they can then self-fund rather than having Facebook continue to fund that content. But for now, Facebook has funded a lot of that content as it did with live video a while back. Uh, and that's launching this week, slowly rolling out to subscribers in this new watch tab. If you've looked at any of Facebook's interfaces on TV platforms like the Apple TV over the last few months, you kind of have some sense of what this looks like already. It's a mix of stuff you've saved, stuff your friends have shared, stuff that's popular on Facebook in general, stuff that the algorithm suggests you might like based on other stuff that you've watched and so on. There are one or two additional elements like being able to subscribe to episodic content. So to the, some, to the extent that some of these new uh, video offerings are series, you can basically say, I've watched this one, I like this, I want to subscribe, and then you're notified whenever there are new episodes in that series. The content that's going to be available is a real mix. Uh, there's a lot of sort of digital native type content, lots of short form, fairly low production value, kind of first person to camera um, and highly sort of shareable content in there. There is some longer form, higher production value stuff from some more traditional broadcasters like National Geographic as well. And there's some sports content in there. So the Mexican Soccer League, um, there are some, uh, there's one MLB game a week, so baseball in the US, that won't start until next year though. And there's some other stuff like that. And there is some other premium stuff which uh, has been leaked but hasn't been officially announced by Facebook yet that should be coming later in the year. So interesting push from Facebook. The big risk here, of course, is that Facebook is going to push time spent from the news feed where it gets to show roughly one ad every seven to ten posts in a very non-interruptive, native uh, way that, that subscribers don't really or users of Facebook don't really object to and which has been highly profitable and driven a lot of growth for them over the last few years. And moving from that to a world of video where the ads will now be interruptive and non-native in the sense that they will not fit within the shows at all. They will be, they will force users to stop watching a show and watch an ad instead. And certainly anecdotal evidence, not just my own experience, but from a lot of what I've seen other people say on Facebook, as they've experimented with mid-roll ads for the shorter videos that run on Facebook today, they've been very off-putting to people. People 
are surprised to see these ads pop up and they basically stop watching video when those mid-roll ads pop up. That's obviously a problem that can be solved if the content is compelling enough and people really want to stick around to see the rest of the video, but it does mean that that video has to be really good. The risk here is that Facebook shifts a bunch of time spent from the newsfeed, which is very proven, works very well, been very profitable for them, moves it to a new medium where the ads are interruptive, potentially harm the user experience, uh, and time spent actually goes down. Uh, Facebook has to pay out a bigger cut of whatever advertising revenue it does make because there's a revenue share with the content creators. And so there's a big risk associated with all this. And I actually wrote about that for Tech Pinions this week. So I'll point to that in the show notes. Number five, uh, Consumer Reports, which had some controversy a few months back, late last year, when it failed to recommend Apple's new MacBooks Pro uh, on the basis of inconsistent battery life, has another controversy on its hands this time around. It has pulled its recommendations of two pieces of Microsoft Surface hardware on the basis that recent surveys suggest older Surface hardware has reliability issues and therefore the track record suggests these new pieces of hardware will also suffer from the same problems. This kind of borrows from uh, Consumer Reports methodology that it uses for cars and a lot of other products where car companies, for example, use the same basic platform, a lot of the same components in all their vehicles. And therefore, if you know the Toyota Corolla from three years ago has a reliability issue, chances are the Corolla from this year will perform similarly. And they're kind of applying that same methodology to laptops. So they're saying that the Surface Book, for example, or the Surface Pro from last year or the year before uh, had some kind of reliability issue. Therefore, these new Surface products from Microsoft will also have reliability issues and can't be recommended. The big flaw here is that unlike cars, for example, and even unlike a number of other laptops, uh, these devices use different components every time. The chips in particular from Intel evolve every year or two and are replaced. Uh, So a lot of the components are different. These are different form factors. So the Microsoft Surface Laptop is a very different form factor from either the Surface Book or the Surface Pro that have come before and therefore doesn't have all the same characteristics So there are some real issues with the methodology here from Consumer Reports. Uh, And so the basis on which they've pulled those recommendations feels pretty flimsy. Microsoft's pushed back pretty hard on all of this, releasing uh, some statements on it, releasing some of their own data in general terms about reliability. Um, But it's very unlikely that Consumer Reports will withdraw the decision that it's made here, unlike in the Apple case last year, which was eventually resolved after it finally agreed to listen to Apple and and investigate things further and discovered the source of the problem. So uh, bad news for Microsoft to the extent that people uh, on the consumer side are buying Surface products. The good news is a lot of those devices will be going into enterprise where they won't be looking at consumer reports at all as a sort of a buying decision. But as we go into back to school buying, uh, as consumers are debating buying the Microsoft laptop, uh, the Surface laptop for the first time, for example, it's bad timing for Microsoft. It's certainly understandable that they would push back pretty hard on all of that. The last story I want to talk about today is is SoundCloud, the ongoing saga of SoundCloud. If you've been following this story at all over the last few months, you know that they um, laid off about 40% of their workforce a few weeks back. Uh, At the time, rumors started to emerge that they were running low on cash and basically wouldn't make it out of the fourth quarter unless there was a new funding source. Uh, That caused some people to worry that SoundCloud was going to go away, that people's recordings and so on were going to disappear and that kind of thing. And SoundCloud eventually came out with a blog post and said, hey, we're here to stay, we're not going anywhere, uh, but without any real foundation for that. They didn't dispute the fundamental uh, reporting that they were going to run out of cash in Q4. 
they basically just made this broad claim without any huge foundation to it. And so since then, there have been a number of reports about potential investors putting new money into SoundCloud to help it to go on financially beyond Q4. And this week, finally, um, there were the first reports that, that that deal was nearing completion. It required buy-in from existing investors because it was at a much lower valuation than previous rounds of funding and implied dilution for a lot of earlier shareholders as well, but on the basis that these two new investors would come in and basically save the company and keep it going so that it can potentially turn itself around and eventually become a sustainable business. So the two new investors are the Rain Group, which is a boutique investment firm based in New York that's invested in a lot of other uh, digital properties, um, notably not many that are profitable, uh, a lot of them that are early stages and therefore kind of unproven in terms of their ability to build a sustainable business. Uh, the other big investor is uh, Tomasic Holdings from Singapore. This is basically a government-owned investment fund that's made lots of interesting technology investments around the world. So that's the second investor. And these two have come in. The Rain Group in particular has a couple of board seats now. Uh, the current CEO, Alex Leung, is going to be um, restricting himself to the chair of the board role while former Vimeo CEO and COO come in to take those roles at SoundCloud and there's various other management shuffles going on as well. So change in management sounds, based on a Bloomberg interview from earlier today, sounds like there'll be something of a pivot in the business model away from the push of on-demand streaming services, which really hasn't worked from SoundCloud, towards trying to monetize better the creator side of the equation. So SoundCloud has, SoundCloud has the SoundCloud Pro offering, uh, which, for example, I use to distribute this podcast and my other podcast, the Tech Narratives podcast. Um, those offerings are going to be beefed up, apparently. Uh, what's not clear to me is how SoundCloud finds a dramatically bigger audience for those creator tools, given that that audience is only so big, there's only such so big a universe of, of music and podcast creators out there, and increasingly there are lots of alternatives for them. And if you're a music producer, you're more likely to choose a platform where you can go on to distribute through paid streaming services and all the rest of it, which uh, doesn't include SoundCloud for today, at least in terms of audience numbers. So I'm rather skeptical about that pivot. Uh, apparently, this is based on work that was done at Vimeo by the former CEO, Kerry Trainer, who's now going to be CEO of Cloud SoundCloud. Of course, Vimeo isn't this massive success story either, and it famously recently had to pull back on its plan to launch a subscription video service, which was something that was... Uh, a project that was kicked off under Trainer, and which, as I say, she had to shut down about a year after he left. So um, not a great track, or track record there either. So I continue to be somewhat skeptical, pretty bearish, I guess, on the potential of SoundCloud to turn itself around, but at least it has some breathing room now to try to figure that all out. Uh, but there continue to be very broad challenges around the streaming music business model in general for the actual distributors, even as it's been a very good business model and a good shift in the industry for the music labels who are doing very well, back to growth, profitable, and growing in their profits as streaming takes off. So that rounds up the six items I wanted to talk to you guys about today. Uh, sorry that it's just been me talking. It's, as I say, Aaron's away this week, so it's just me, but uh, we should be back with our normal format, both of us, next week. Hopefully you found that interesting. I'll include links to various things in the show notes that I've talked about today. Um, I've talked about all these items earlier in the week on the Tech Narratives podcast, which goes out every day, every sort of evening US time. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, want more of it on a more frequent basis, you might want to go check out the Tech Narratives podcast as well. Uh, but that's it for me this week on the Beyond Devices podcast. As I say, we'll be back with at least one, hopefully two episodes next week. 
uh, with a question of the week and news roundup and featuring both Aaron and myself. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.